everyone. Um, I would first of all like to start by thanking Kenny and Nina for inviting me here to Bioneers and um, enfolding me <laughs> in this amazing embrace of positive thinking. It's, it's quite a lovely experience to be here. Um, so thank you. <laughs> and, um, and then I'd like to start with a short prayer. Sangye chada chokye chonamba chanchu bhaito dhani kyapsa che taki jinsa kipu sanam ke dola kenche sangye dupa So um, I started, um, I began to call myself an environmentalist and a Buddhist at the same time and for the same reason. I grew up in Sikkim in the Himalayas, as Kenny said, and at the age of 15, I moved to New York City. It was quite a shock. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I found myself just longing for wilderness. There was no green to see anywhere in New York. And, um, also longing for the sight of venerable monks in red robes. It's, um, I think, basically, in a thunderclap of homesickness, I declared myself as a Buddhist and an environmentalist. But these two worlds never converged for me. It was as though I functioned as a rational, scientific conservationist that day and as a you know, faithful, devoted Buddhist at night. And I saw these as two very separate things until something happened to me. Um, for the first 10 years of the work I did with WWF, I actually worked in the Himalayas and the Mekong. This map gives you an idea of how conservationists think when we look at the world. And sort of, you know, this is, this is basically the layout of the biomes, and we pick priority places based on biodiversity value and ecosystem value and how intact they are, and that's where we work. And so I worked in a very prescribed way. I mean, I love the work I did, but by the end of the 10 years, I was actually really depressed and discouraged and quite angry. <laughs> and so in 2007, I joined my family in Bodh Gaya. Some of you will know where that is. Um, that's where Lord Buddha was enlightened. And um, I used to think of these pilgrimages as sort of you know, very noisy, dusty things to avoid, very loud and crowded and annoying. And I'd do it just to make my family happy. Like probably many of you do this too. <laughs> um, but something changed for me there. Um, His Holiness the Karmapa, who's the head of the Kagyu lineage for Tibetan Buddhism, he's also the head of my lineage, um, gave a teaching on um, compassion to animals. And um, what he, the basis of the teaching that he gave was actually the prayer I just gave you, which was, I started with, um, which is called the refuge prayer. And Buddhists usually, when they become Buddhists or declare themselves as Buddhists, this is the prayer they learn. And we are taught this, this prayer by the time we're four. It's, it's the first prayer we learn. And the prayer basically says, um, I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha, which is the community, um, until I become enlightened. And then I will work to be enlightened so that I can alleviate suffering for all sentient beings. And we just rattle this prayer all the time. And what he talked about was that, how was it possible that we say this prayer every day, but then we go on to eat meat? And by the end of the teaching, he said, how many people want to be vegetarians? And he asked this question. And a sea of hands, thousands of hands rose up, and one of, one of those hands was mine, completely unexpected. I tried to be vegetarian for many years, and for all the right reasons, you know, climate change, deforestation, health, you name it, and always failed. And all of a sudden, my, my heart just rose up and said, I want to do this, and I, I've been vegetarian since. So what happened there? So it was this fascinating experience. My brain was analyzing it, even as my hand was up there, because what I did was something that was quite inconvenient, nothing I planned to do, um, you know, something that went against everything I enjoyed, and yet my faith compelled me to do it. And it was because of the call of my faith leader. 
And so I think that's the first time, firsthand, that I experienced the power of faith and how that could change behavior. Um, and so the second thing that happened was His Holiness asked that I give him um, a, a presentation on the state of the environment in the Himalayas. And by the end of the conversation, he said he had a vision for Buddhism. And he said that he wanted all Buddhist monks and nuns in monastery to leave their meditation mat, to come outside to the community and work with the community to solve social and environmental ills. This is quite revolutionary in Buddhism. <laughs> And so I thought, okay, great, yeah, I can do that. Um, I'll take two weeks annual leave, I'll come in, <laughs> I'll work with your monks and nuns, and you know, it'll be a nice short-term investment in my karma bank. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I will do it. Um, and so now, so I thought it's a two-week thing. It's our fifth year now. We have 55 monasteries working on environmental projects. And just to give you a sample, they do everything from plantation of indigenous forests, indigenous trees and saplings, um, they install, 22 monasteries have solar for heating. Um, they incorporate wildlife protection messages in their, in their prayers and their rituals. These monasteries are in some of the most fragile and ecologically important landscapes. Their decision-making, their, their um, influence actually radiates into the community. They sway decision-making at the highest levels. So Kenny talked a lot about, you know, talked about this earlier, that 80% of people in the world follow a spiritual faith. And that these are all facts, these are all reasons for why we should see faith institutions as important stakeholders in conservation. But one of the most important things that I think we in the science world have really forgotten is that religion is actually the original basis. It's the original compelling moral framework for social action. And it's time for us to bring that back. <laughs> So this is how the two halves actually came together for me. <laughs> for the last two years, WWF has been engaged in this very intense internal dialogue about the role of religion in conservation and how is it that we, we bring back the value of nature, not just on the economic side, but we bring back the discussion into the sacred value of nature. And so with this, we've lo we launched a whole new program called Sacred Earth. And so, being a science-based organization, we're, we're testing our hypothesis to see if actually working with religion does shift the needle, it does make change in the, on the issues we care about, in the places we care about. Um, and so I'm gonna give you some of the examples of what's been happening in the last two years since the end of 2011. So, one really sad issue that um, connects and bridges Africa and Asia is the wildlife issue of illegal wildlife trade. Um, most people think of poaching as something local people do to put food on the table, or, you know, to make ends meet. In reality, wildlife trade is the fifth most um, uh, profitable industry, illegal industry in the world. It's, um, it follows exactly the same patterns as um, the trafficking of guns um, and the trafficking of drugs. It's managed by international crime syndicates. And um, the relationship between wildlife trade and local militia in Africa and terrorist groups in Africa is extremely strong. Ivory is how they're making their money now, which is why ivory is now called blood ivory. So last year was the worst year we've had in 20 years, and we're just seeing the numbers just plummet. Just yesterday there was a headline that um, many tons of ivory was seized in Uganda. 
Um, so this is the only gory image, I promise. Um, but this gives you an idea of what we see all the time when we're in the field. It's something that's really damaging to the psyche of environmentalists, of course, but it's also, it destroys the community. And there is so much violence in the community when poaching happens there. To give you an idea of how this, these numbers have just changed, in 2007, there were 13 rhinos that were poached in South Africa. Last year, there were 600 rhinos poached in South Africa. And so what we decided to do was a combination of encouraging religious leaders to step up and speak on this, but also asking for their prayers and asking for them to heal this, this pain that exists in local communities. Um, so we brought over th 35 religious leaders across Africa from the Christian faith, the Hindu faith, um, uh, from Islam and from traditional African faiths. And these are all leaders that already work on sustainability issues. And so they came together and we did this prayer around the ivory burning memorial site in Nairobi National Park. And we, it was a really rich conversation, but actually what came out of it very tangibly was 50 religious leaders made commitments on behalf of their religious institutions that they will do something on wildlife crime. And what we've seen now is the Presbyterian churches of East Africa, they've, designed, they've created a whole liturgy on wildlife and how they are children of God. Um, the Catholic Church has run programs in every diocese in Kenya training their Catholic clergy on wildlife crime and how to stop it in their communities. So it's quite powerful. Of course, it's not enough just to work in the supply side. So si simultaneously, we we've been working in Thailand. Now, most of the ivory goes to China, and it goes through Thailand because Thailand has a legal domestic market for ivory. And so it's become this sinkhole and sort of a laundering machine for ivory to go through. And so we went to all the Buddhist leaders that we could reach and said, Can you, is this a Buddhist issue? Could you care about this? And, and the response was so huge. It was just unanimous. Everybody responded saying, they wanted to do something. So what we did is um, during CITES, which is the Convention of International Trade on um, wildlife, wildlife Products, we actually brought um, all these monks and nuns, many of them who've never met and who represent their traditions together, and we had a merit-making ceremony for elephants. Now, a merit-making ceremonies for Thais are done for their venerable elders. It's something you just do for your family members. And so what these monks and what this nun did was they elevated the statue of elephants in a very far off continent and made them extremely personal and made the Thai people feel that they're responsible for the fate of the elephants. And so not soon after, we were working um, with a lot of partners and we basically made a call to the Prime Minister of Thailand, Prime Minister um, Shinawatra, and she actually stood up and said, okay, we commit. We are gonna shut down the domestic market for ivory next year. So they're working on this. The third example I wanted to give you is the Amazon. Um, this was quite a leap for me because I jumped across. I'd never been there, and I went and um, went to the Catholic Church in Brazil. And the archdiocese was very nervous. And um, I met with the bishop, the archbishop, and his first question to me, he just looked at me. He didn't know anything about me, and he said, "You are Buddhist." <laughs> it was sort of, you know, <laughs> quite a shock. But he wanted so much to support what we were doing. And we, when we talked about how the Amazon is a living thing and that it spans all these countries, it needs to be seen as a living thing. So he invited us to work with them to, for World Youth Day, which is one of the largest pilgrimages in the world. And so in July of this year, 3.5 million Catholic youth came to Rio 
to meet with Pope Francis. It was also the first time the Pope was returning to Latin America as the Pope, it's very huge. Um, and so we worked with World Youth Day organizers and the Catholic Church to create this PowerPoint, and I would love to show it to you because it shows you just how far we've, um, uh, we've stepped away from what WWF does normally. Um, so as I was saying, this was quite a leap of faith for WWF to do, um, but it allowed us to get into conversations about the importance of the Amazon with some of the most powerful people in the Amazon, which is, of course, the faith leaders there. Um, and one of the things we did was um, we appealed to the Pope and we worked with indigenous leaders, we worked with the churches um, to ask that the Pope address the issue of protecting the Amazon and see it as one sustainable living um, entity. and. and apply the power of the church to protecting that. And what was amazing was in a, in a closed door meeting with the bishops, all the bishops from Latin America, the Pope actually did raise this issue. And he said that the bishops had to work and the Catholic Church had to work to protect the rights of indigenous peoples and their lands in the Amazon. And so this is what the bishops are working on right now. final example and the final place that we're working in is the United States and I don't think there's anything we can do here that faith leaders are not already doing amazing work um, everything from the Catholic Coalition on Climate Change the Evangelical Environmental Network 
um, IPL, the Interfaith Power and Light. So what we decided is instead of reinventing the wheel or doing something that you know, is really unnecessary, we've targeted the youth in America and we're working with young faith leaders in the United States. Um, as many of you know, almost 50% of our world population is under the age of 25. We have to engage them and we have to nurture them as the next leaders um, for any kind of sustainable work because the future is actually theirs. And so we've designed this program. We're working with about right now 30,000 um, young American faith leaders and um, we do monthly calls to action that they can do in their communities and in their youth groups and with their churches. Um, and we've also created this website that they can go to, they upload their own stories in their authentic voices for why their faith matters and how that leads them to be better environmentalists. So um, people have asked me, how is it possible that um, I have been able to work with religious leaders around the world, even though I'm a Buddhist from Sikkim, tiny place in the Himalayas, you know, I'm talking to evangelical leaders and the church and Islamic councils and so on. And, and the truth is, it's so easy. I've actually talked to them as a faith-based person. I haven't come in as a social scientist. I didn't come in you know, talking about WWF and the Panda brand or anything. I just came to them and said, I'm a faith-based person. My faith compels me to try and save the world. We have something in common, which is we really believe in the sanctity of all life on Earth. And no religious leader has said, this is irrelevant to my mission. <laughs> They've all actually just completely embraced this cause and said, okay, this is what we're waiting for. And it's such a moment of hope for me because what I see is a convergence of faith leaders coming from all around the world. Maybe we're reclaiming the sacred feminine. Maybe it's they see themselves as the solutionists. It's quite an amazing movement. And so um, I think what WWF is doing with this program is really um, changing the dual nature of the discussions that we have about science versus religion and saying we actually need both. If we are going to talk about a living vision for the earth that goes on for millennia, then we need both. We need people to think with their hearts. We need them to see that their soul is connected to every other living creature on this planet. And we need to apply the science to come up with the solutions. So. <laughs> So next year is year three of this experiment. <laughs> and so this is when I prove to the conservation world that this strategy has actually worked. Um, it's interesting to see that we're seeing more and more conservation organizations actually pick up faith-based partnerships. Um, just in the last year, many of them have started doing it. And so I think what we're also seeing is that the conservation movement sees the, the importance of engaging sacred values and, and going back to the roots of why we care about nature, which is we're all interconnected. And so I hope you join me in the last year <laughs> and we can work together to bring this together and ha in the har have a harmonious future. Thank you so much. <laughs>